You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 22nd of May, 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Bage. On today's program... Look at what this debate is doing to our politics. Extending it for months more, perhaps indefinitely, risks opening the door to a nightmare future of permanently polarised politics. Theresa May's latest gamble on her Brexit bill fails as calls for her to step aside grow louder. My guests Pippa Malmgrim and Nina Schick will be discussing what's next for Brexit and the day's other top stories, including, speaking of division, Democrats in the U.S. are split on whether or not to open impeachment proceedings against President Donald Trump as he continues to stonewall Congress over the findings of the Mueller report. And Amazon debates whether to stop the sale of facial recognition technology to police forces and government agencies. All that plus, electric scooters have been unleashed onto city streets around the world. Are e-scooters actually a mobility solution or just a dangerous nuisance to everyone? That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Daniel Bache. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Dr. Pippa Malmgrim, co-founder of H Robotics and former economic advisor to President George W. Bush and political commentator Nina Schick. Welcome both to the program and back to Midori House. Uh, we begin by focusing on Westminster, where Theresa May has failed to win over opposition lawmakers or even her own party with her revamped Brexit deal. Mrs. May had offered MPs a vote on holding a second referendum and closer trading arrangements with Europe, uh, among a few other concerns sessions, uh, but her bid to push through the EU withdrawn deal appears to be in tatters and has only amplified calls for her to step aside. And uh, Nina, perhaps we'll start with you, um, understanding that the that this could be a matter of hours, not necessarily days or, or, or months. Yeah, I mean, with Theresa May, the writing is on the wall and it was never a question of if but when. And now it's like, how soon? Um, there are rumours from well-placed sources in Westminster saying, you know, it could be as soon as today before the kind of broadcasting restrictions kick in tomorrow for the European parliamentary elections. Um, I'm not sure about that, but I think what we can be sure of is that Theresa May will no longer be prime minister when the Conservatives have their next mm. Conservative Party conference in the fall. Vis-a-vis um, -vis Brexit, I mean, her offer yesterday, which was shot down almost as soon as it was made, I mean, that's really unsurprising because she is really between a rock and a hard place. And the things that she was able to offer doesn't really change the substance of the choices that the UK has on the table. And mm -hmm. the substance of those choices haven't changed since those negotiations with the EU wrapped up last November. Let's not forget that we spent the last two months of this extension, we're supposed to leave in March, fighting about, you know, whether or not Theresa May will stay, loads of inter internal domestic battles, and that looks set to continue. Right. So when that extension runs out in October, you can bet your money that I guess we'll be asking for a new extension, even though we'll have a new prime minister. Uh, Pippa, I want to come to you in just a moment, but Nina, I, I want to ask um, first if uh, this was no surprise, the reaction perhaps from, from the Conservatives and from the opposition, but was it significant to you that uh, the prime minister put in this offer of a second referendum to Parliament? Well, she didn't 
act, there's nothing preventing Parliament from yeah. having a second referendum yeah. or a confirmatory vote. Um, in any case, she was basically saying, you know, you could have this if you wanted it. Parliament has a significant amount of control over the proceedings. And what Theresa May, poor embattled uh, Theresa May, has been trying to do time and time and time again is to get her deal through Brexit and uh, her deal through Parliament because the mm. only way Brexit can actually be delivered is if Parliament vote for her deal. And as for what happens after that, well, that's decided after the deal is voted on because these negotiations are structured in two phases. Phase one is leaving and the negotiations as to what happens next, that comes afterwards. Pippo, does this seem like a moment of desperation from the prime minister? Are we at that point is, or is it she's out the door and she knows that? Uh, well, what's amazing is uh, her tenacity and capacity to hang on. She yeah. keeps surprising us True. that she is still here when you thought she wouldn't be any longer. But what I think is also interesting in the background is that the so-called crash out hard exit Every single day that passes, it's less of a hard exit because the civil service have had more time to do the preparations. And what I suspect is the next prime minister is going to make the case that an actual leaving without a deal is not a crash, is not a hard exit, that the country actually will be fine in such right. a scenario. And that will cause the European Union to say, oh, oh, I didn't realize they were serious, that they might actually go. And it'll change the nature of the dialogue altogether and end up in a situation that Theresa May could not have arrived at without this happening. Mm, interesting. Um, there's also this discussion of uh, sort of changing, altering party rules to, to push her out uh, without a no-confidence deal, which can't happen for another year or into, or into 2020. Is that interesting to you at all, Nina? Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, the, the kind of trials and tribulation and cloak and dagger politics of Westminster right now are fascinating, right? Um, while there's much bigger things happening in the geopolitical sphere, you know, in Westminster, we're very, very kind of Game of Thronesy right now. So, yeah, because what happened is that there was a vote of confidence with Theresa May last year, but because of the Fixed Terms Parliament Act, you know, she, she won that. Um, so she can't be removed from power technically um, until... Uh, I think it's October this year. Mm. Clearly, it's not going to last that long. So they have to do some, um, you know, change the rules a little bit to kick her out. Because I think, as we already talked about, the writing's on the wall mm. and she's got to go. Uh, I wonder, Pippa, if, if the media, in as we do, if we mm. focus too much on this downward spiral of the Conservatives as that's happening. You already came on to some of the other interesting facets that are happening uh, in ongoing relations uh, with Europe. But is that too much of the focus at this moment? Um, yeah, I do think that, look, it just sells airtime and newspapers mm. to say that the country's on the brink of a catastrophe and literally the nation is on the edge of sl sliding into the North Sea and sinking. Mm. Right? This is a great story if you're trying to, to sell airtime. But I think the reality is very different. And I'm very privileged I get to deal with some of the world's biggest investors. They are all very confident about Britain's future. We see them deploying much more capital here. They're like, you guys are leading in artificial intelligence, biomedical research, uh, high-end manufacturing, still in financial services. It's not like everything is decamped to Paris and Brussels and, and uh, Germany. In fact, I think the prospect of that is extremely 
extremely remote for a whole bunch of reasons. So it's kind of, I, someone has said recently, what the British are really good at exporting is pessimism. <laughs> and you know, there's an element of truth that, and I, I feel like my core competence these days is that I used to be a cheerleader in high school, and I spent my whole time saying to the British, you know, whatever way this goes, you guys are going to be fine. You invented the Magna Carta. Mm. You know, you're perfectly capable of managing this over time. But there's a kind of navel-gazing quality to this. And as you say, the global geopolitics is becoming very demanding now. And the British have an, a very important role to play. They're the only trusted interlocutor between the U.S. and China. They've been very good at managing um, the tricky situation with President Putin. And yet their view is, oh, I'm sorry, I can't be in that right now because I'm distracted by Brexit. And the whole world's waiting for the British to come back to the table, which, which they will sit at whether Brexit happens or doesn't and have their say. Hmm. Have the Brits and, and politicians in particular been too glum over or how democracy is working? Is it working or is there this existential question over? We have to rethink that too after we get through this little uh, deal uh, of Brexit. No, I think there is something of a seismic shift underway. And that is that, you know, there is a series of trade-offs to be made vis-a-vis -vis Brexit, right? And if no politician can level with the public what those trade-offs are, then ultimately you lose the trust of the public. So it doesn't matter now really what happens. You know, it can be a deal, no deal. You can be a remainer or a lever. Chances are you're annoyed and you think the establishment or or the politicians or Westminster, whatever it is, has not represented you. Right. Now, the longer this quandary continues, and I believe it is set to continue for uh, not even months, but potentially even years, the, <laughs> the more trust is eroded in the entire system. Um, and I think that vis-a-vis -vis Brexit, if you, uh, if you look at all the kind of outcomes of how this could go, none of them say, oh, it's going to be uh, a lot better economically. No one's saying that it's going to be cataclysmic. You know, the city of London is not going anywhere. And Frankfurt and Paris, they can't compete with the city of London. However, if you have, and Britain will still continue to grow, it's a great country, but it will possibly be lower than, you know, when it was an integral part of the world's largest free trading area, the single market. So if you have some kind of economic hit, and that's the burden of that is borne by uh, poorer voters, and then you have this equal distrust in politics and politicians at the same time, that's going to have a long-term effect. And I expect that the politics in this country, there is no such thing as post-Brexit for right. a long time. It's going to be defined by Brexit for a long That's time. That's interesting. Uh, Pippa, last word to you. Yeah, but let's uh, just for, for a moment, let's switch it around. There are countries where you cannot be in a debate. You are not permitted to have an alternative opinion to the government. So, yes, we're having this huge punch-up right now about what is the correct path for the future. I think it's great that we can have this punch-up. Yeah. I mean, this is the privilege of democracy, and I think it's very it's easy for everyone to go, oh, you know, we don't agree like we used to, and this is a disaster. Well, no, maybe it's a privilege that we can not agree like we used to. That doesn't mean the work isn't hard. The work is hard. And to come to a point where we can have a consensus again is, I agree, that's a multi-year task. But at least we can have the conversation. 
Well, on on that note and a lack of consensus, we change capitals. We move from London to Washington, D.C. now, where President Donald Trump has stormed out of a meeting with Democratic congressional leaders after Speaker Nancy Pelosi accused him of a cover-up. Divisions have been deepening on both sides of the aisle over how to proceed with investigations of the president himself. Pelosi has not committed on an impeachment inquiry, uh, something many more liberal Democrats have been pushing for recently. Those calls have grown much louder this week as uh, Trump continues to stonewall Congress over the Mueller report, most recently by ordering former White House counsel Don McGahn to ignore a subpoena from lawmakers calling on him to testify before the House Judiciary Committee in regards to uh, the president's attempts to obstruct that Russia investigation. Uh, Pippa, Nancy Pelosi has said the president has engaged in a cover-up, as I said there. So why is she again today hesitant to even go down the road of impeachment? See, this is the really interesting question. Mm. Why don't they just do it? And I'll tell you, the simple answer is because the Democrats know very well that whoever pulls the trigger goes down too. That's what we learned from the impeachment process around President Nixon, around President Clinton, is the whole nation gets ripped apart. And they don't want their fingerprints on Mm. that. That's one of the reasons I think it's effectively being outsourced to uh, the judiciary. And if you really step back and look at this, what you see is the person who's leading the charge is not in Congress. It's the New York State Attorney General, Trish James. And she's the one who's really going after the Trump story. But the international media doesn't get it because they thought the Mueller investigation was where all the action was. But right. the fact is the president can pardon everyone in the Mueller investigation. It was never going to go anywhere, I mean, from a legal point of view. And you could say, well, if he pardons himself, that would go to the Supreme Court. Yeah, but this is years. It takes time. Right. So the bottom line is... Would it be better for Congress if the New York state prosecutor pulled the trigger on the gun? And the answer is yes. And so that's the thing, in my opinion, to watch. And meanwhile, Democrats will keep going around in all these circles going, do you think we should do this? Yes, I think we should do this. Well, maybe when when do you think we should do this? I don't know. when. It's literally like the Keystone Cops because it's not going to be Congress that pulls the trigger on this thing. Well, you mentioned it there, uh, years perhaps. And and I wonder, Nina, if if Pelosi just has her mind on on 2020. Mm. (laughs) Oh, yeah, she's got her mind on 2020. Um, um, And it's interesting to see that some Democrats in, you know, sway congressional districts really want to go for the impeachment. But I think Pippa is absolutely right. And I don't think Congress will be pulling the trigger. And in many regards, that's because of the whole setting up of the narrative, right? Right. Remember when all this hype was going on around the Mueller investigation, it was we're going to find proof of collusion. Mm. We're going to find proof of collusion. Donald Trump has personally, you know, signed his soul, sold his soul to Vladimir Putin in a Moscow hotel. And when that was not found, you know, it was a bit of a damn squib. So it doesn't really matter that, you know, other offenses may have been committed. Right. Now that the golden egg of collusion is off the table, I mean, can you seriously take that down the impeachment route? They, I mean, they shot themselves in the foot with that. Yeah, yeah I mean, here's the question. Impeach him for what? <laughs> this, is the, this is the bazillion dollar question that nobody can answer because we don't like him, because he's not a nice guy. None of these are impeachable offenses. So impeachment is a political process, remember. Right. It's not a legal process. Um, so you can't really bring a political process because you don't like the other guy. Nobody likes the other guy. I mean, you could impeach everyone in Congress on that basis. Mm. I wonder if, if Robert Mueller effectively left the door open for this conversation to continue, though. 
I think that is probably exactly right. And there's been little attention paid to this issue of double jeopardy. Yeah. Um, and I think he was aware of this issue and wanted to leave things in a situation where, where um, it couldn't be claimed at a later date that the president had already been tried in one court and therefore couldn't be tried in another one. And that's why, again, I think it's just interesting to watch this New York state prosecutor. She's very aggressive. She's going after very big fish. She is uh, going after Facebook. Uh, she's going after the Sackler family on the opiate crisis. And she's going after Trump on the finances of the family businesses. So t she, to me, not only looks like a formidable uh, person, but that this is, this, this is a presidential launch pad. And by the way, the New York State Attorney General position has been a presidential campaign launchpad for many generations um, since since the 1930s. So she's the first African-American female in that position, and she's utterly fearless. Hmm. Uh, I wonder um, if, if we say um, Donald Trump may be calling Congress's bluff here. Do, do, is that a possibility? Because we've said there's there's this bit of a sideshow and we're focused on it. Or is he saying, fine, start it, because he knows that it's, it's a never-ending process? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. And I think he does know that it's a never-ending process. And what's more important, you know, for him, I mean, he is the master of spinning a narrative, right? Mm -hmm. So if they actually went down down that route, I think it would actually make his supporters even more emboldened, you know, be yeah. another reason for them to go out and vote totally for him in 2020. Mm. does not matter what he... He will... He will just hunker down and say, you know, this is the witch hunt. This is why they're doing this. It's all nonsense. And I think it might actually be a huge electoral weapon for yeah. him as we go into the presidential. Totally. I wonder, uh, we talked about all this focus uh, on the possibility of removing Donald Trump and not on all the other things that are happening, specifically in New York State, as you pointed out, Pippa. But I wonder if, if he's completely sucked the oxygen out of D.C. because government is working. Other things are actually happening, but we never talk about it. No. We talk about Donald Trump. Exactly. Well, he's, as you say, he's a massive of managing the headlines and that's a that's a real skill in politics mm. um, you know what's really interesting going into this next election is what's happening also in terms of the Democrats and so some of the Democrats might just they've described the situation as it's the shootout at the OK Corral as the Democrats surround they, they get in a circle and they start to fire on each other and we'll see who's left standing uh, and even then, the difficulty now is the Democrats neither have a candidate, which is overcomable, nor a story. That's a much bigger thing. The story used to be the economy is terrible, vote for us. Yeah. Yeah, but now the economy is amazing. I mean, it's it's firing on all engines. Now, there are people left behind in that, yeah. and they can play on that, but they can't say the economy is bad. So, okay, what else have you got? And if all else you have is we all agree we hate Donald Trump, mm. that's not a great vote for me story. So I am waiting to hear from the Democrats, just give me anything yeah. that's your reason why the public should put you in office. And so far, we just don't have that. Uh, what, what about the pressure, uh, Nina, just lastly, on uh, Nancy Pelosi? Obviously, she's there's been suggestions she's trying to protect some of these younger rookie Democrats in a sense, but um, there's huge pressure. Does she face a bit of a re rebellion in the next few months in her party and, and maybe a crippling one ahead of the election? Potentially, but she is a formidable woman. Um, and, you know, I was reminded of that um, when the government shut down, just before the government shutdown happened, 
when <laughs> she basically played Trump and made him claim responsibility for that, which did not, you know, didn't play well for him in the end, um, even though, you know, he's weathered that storm like many others. Um, I think that for some of the young kind of Democrats in Congress right now, um, it, it's more... It's exactly what Pippa says. I think the defining story for them is that they're defined by their opposition to Trump, right? right? And I don't think that's good enough. So perhaps their time will only come after they've had a bit more time to mature in office, but I, it might not be in 2020. Interesting to watch, and we're going to find out, <laughs> but not just yet. Uh, you are listening to Midori House coming up next. More trouble for facial recognition technology. Monocle Films has spent 10 days aboard a Finnish icebreaker to witness the beginning of the icebreaking season in the Bay of Bothnia. We watch the crew at work as they tow ships through the ice and cut out the vessels that have got stuck. Icebreaker driving requires captains to operate implements weighing thousands of tonnes with surgical delicacy. First time I came as a navigator, I was like, oh my God, we are like metres away from another ship, but you get used to it. In a merchant marine, you're trying to stay away from other ships and uh, keep them away. But here, here you're trying to keep them almost as close as possible. Icebreakers Rescue Know-How, play now in the film section at monocle.com. You are listening to Midori House here with me, Daniel Bache, Pippa Malmgram, and Nina Schick. Amazon's shareholders are voting today on facial recognition. This will decide if the company should stop selling its technology, uh, its systems as well, to U.S. police forces and to other government agencies. I wonder if uh, if we see this as, as a conversation over uh, civil rights. Is that where this is going, Nina? Yeah. um, Well, it's a huge conversation to be had. And, you know, George Orwell would be and is turning around in his grave, right? As technology and artificial intelligence advances, the fact is that there are huge powers of surveillance. And the question is, who should have the ability to use this kind of technology, facial recognition technology? Should it be employed by police forces? I mean, actually, in many cities, it's already widely deployed, to be honest with you. Um, But it hasn't so much made uh, that much of a mark in the public discourse yet. And I think that's because for most people, it's imperceptible. I think if you, you know, if if you uh, cross London in a day, you're captured on camera or film in 800 times. So as as facial recognition technology becomes more and more sophisticated, there's huge kind of ethical questions, you know, because I think that it's not as good as recognizing certain races as others and you could be profiled and. It's just the beginning, I think, of a much wider debate about how you deploy AI in society and what the ethical implications of that are. And I think that uh, as, as Pip and I were discussing before we came in, you know, these are the kind of debates that are going to frame our society in, in the very near future. Well, I found it quite interesting that uh, San Francisco was the first big city to, to ban this technology. Yeah. And, and uh, Silicon Valley um, <laughs> loves to trumpet all these, these wonderful advancements in technology, but they often go unchecked, I guess. And we're going to come on to e-scooters Don't. and the problem of that. But I wonder if, if, uh, if that was interesting to you, that it was San Francisco that of really course. made a bold statement. Yeah. Of course, and it, it's totally logical because they understand how this mm-hmm. would be used because yeah. they've mm. invented it, right? So here's the thing. You may say, well, I don't care if they capture my face as I walk down the street. But the way this works is when you walk into a shop, your image is captured, and now now it's in a database. 
and it can be in a crime-related database. And the thing is, AI is not actually that good yet. Mm -hmm. So the failure rate or the positives can be like 15% of the time it's a false positive. So now four security guards come up to you in the shop, surround you, and basically make it clear that you are not welcome here because you've been identified as a person who's been shoplifting, and you say, no, 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 that's not me. Now you can't even go argue because the artificial intelligence processing stuff isn't even in the store. Mm -hmm. It's some third party that even the store may not know who is it that we should go to. So this is the thing, how that data is used and and what other databases is hooked up with. We we were saying on the way in here, things like, um, you may say, well, I don't care, I have nothing to hide. But now if you buy Ben & Jerry's ice cream and a pizza at 11 p.m. at night on a MasterCard, Google knows because they have a relationship. You are doing it in the presence of your Siri at home, which now is subpoenaed in murder trials because it's such an accurate witness. And all that data shows up when you go to employ for a job, the HR department has in your profile, this is a person who's having a bit of a meltdown on a Thursday night, typically, because look at what they're eating. And they're not saying that's a cause of your future poor performance with the company, but AI is all about correlations. Mm. So they go, hmm, correlations look pretty high. This person's a little wobbly at home. We're not interviewing them. Mm. Okay, now do you care? The answer is, yeah, you darn well care. I wonder if if then most people or more people are concerned about exactly that over um, being targeted on a list by security guards, as you say, but, but that this data is going to be sold to someone. And someone will have it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's already to happening. everyone, yeah, right? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's already happening right now to everyone. And, I mean, in in the coming years, if not already, I mean, data, owning data, mm. that's kind of like the Saudi Arabia of the 20th century where they found they were sitting on this massive pile of black gold oil. You know, mm. data is going to become the commodity, if it already isn't, that is extremely valuable, um, you know, to be traded um, on, on a market of futures. And people's behavior can be modified by right. this data. And uh, the question is, who holds the data? You know, in as Pip and I were discussing in North America, it's private ventures. And in China, it's the state. Yeah. <laughs> and what do they do with that? Uh, and in China, I mean, we already know they have a social credit rating system, yeah. right? They take people's data to uh, monitor their interactions, to monitor their movements, to see what they do every step of their life, to then give them a credit rating. And we know for marginalized groups like the Tibetans or the Uyghurs, that's used to control them. And even the wider population, I mean, just a few months ago, 67 million Chinese people were yeah. banned from traveling. So the future is really going to be defined by who who is the master of data, who owns your data, yeah. and do people realize that they can be manipulated in very subtle ways that they aren't even aware of yet? Yeah. Yeah, and I think the other big issue is this whole business of scoring. And I don't think it's only the Chinese. I mean, Facebook is scoring us. Amazon is scoring us. So, for example, in the morning, okay, here's a personal revelation. In the morning, I'm not a morning person. I love lying in bed for as long as possible and, like, letting my subconscious talk to my conscious because it's where all my creative thinking comes from that leads to my books and a lot of the ideas that I get into. But my data about my physical movement, which now more and more the the receivers in my house, my Internet of Things devices, they're capturing my breathing, they're capturing my physical location, even if I don't have a wearable on. 
So now what that's transmitting is this is a person who's not fit. They're lazy. They're lying in bed. They're not going for a run at 10 a.m. Now, do we want us now? I do that little stuff later in the day. But the point is, do we want a society where we mark and rank and judge human beings uh, as if they're not as good if they're not out running? You know, we don't Mm. give any value to what's the qualitative effect of having creative time for thinking. I mean, Einstein, he always said, you know, creativity is the residue of time wasted. So what are we going to do? Start penalizing people because they're, quote, wasting their time. And this is, I think, the central AI question is, on what basis are Mm -hmm. we judging human behavior? Uh, Very important conversation, and uh, it will be uh, an interesting turn here, but I want to make sure we just have a minute to talk about about e-scooters in Germany, the country's upper house of parliament, uh, due to vote later this week on whether or not to make electric scooters uh, to allow them onto the country's road. The transport minister behind the plan uh, has uh, faced protests from lobby groups uh, representing both car drivers and bike riders. Uh, e-scooters, love them, I hate them. Uh, Silicon Valley says they're the mobility solution of the future. Uh, how do, what do we think? You know where I stand. But Nina. <laughs> look, look, I get it. I mean, you, we need to have big policy discussions and conversations about how we get around our urban centers, because clearly, uh, because of environmental reasons and uh, sustainability reasons, it needs to be radically transformed. However, e-scooters are massively annoying <laughs> and they are a safety hazard hmm. i'm sorry you've been to san francisco you've you've seen uh, you've seen how they're deployed there it's the it's the guy with the the noise canceling headphones the hood up all in black at mm-hmm. night uh, weaving through traffic and you think this is just going to cause more harm than good <laughs> badly you know here's the funny thing too uh, there's a new robotic tool that uh, fixes potholes but local authorities around the world are not spending money on it because they're like, oh, well, we've always fixed potholes the same way as in the past. We don't need this newfangled intervention, invention. And so, weirdly, you've got streets full of potholes, and now we're going to give scooters permission to fly up and down them. We have a technology solution that could address this piece, but we won't do it. And on the other hand, we know that helmets save lives in any context, but we're not requiring helmets with the potholes for the people on the e-scooters. And again, you know, it should be completely illegal to be listening to, right, your music, but people do it all the time. And frankly, they do it walking down the street. One thing we know from the British experience, especially here in London, um, from the Boris bikes, was there were a number of deaths and they were Mm -hmm. caused by people riding bicycles in London without any helmet on and hitting potholes simple hmm. i have to throw it out there though i as cycling around not sc- scootering around but cycling i i would wager to say that nine out of ten near accidents are caused by pedestrians on their cell phones oh well now we blame yeah. pedestrians yeah but blame but, them and but you know <laughs> so you're not <laughs> wrong i mean the, the internet's full of these wonderful memes yeah. of people walking into lampposts because they're <laughs> looking at their phone yeah, this has become like an extension of the of, of humanity. So, yeah, what are you going to do about that? Well, I hope all the scooters end up uh, at the bottom of the Thames. But uh, we can we can leave that for another day. That does bring us to the end of today's show. Pippa Malmgram and Nina Schick, thank you for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show produced by Carlotta Rabello, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Julia Webster, and our studio manager was Christy Evans. More music next, and then it's 19, at 1900 hours London time. It is The Entrepreneurs with yours truly. Truly, Midori House back at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London time. I'm Daniel Bage. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.